politics Some culture and craft beer Politics And that is why you're here Politics Bottoms up Bottoms up and welcome back Blotto here I gotta say, I'm really excited. I mean, we are rapidly approaching episode 100, because this is episode 99. And I'm not quite sure uh, how I'm going to celebrate the centennial of Potoms Up. Hopefully, I'll have a guest or some really juicy news to commentate on. But uh, we'll have to see how that sort of pans out. But for episode 99, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, I haven't been on in a couple weeks, and uh, a lot has started. So before I get into that, though... Let's uh, crack open a beer so I get into the right frame of mind to talk about all the shit that's going down in the world. Today, I have Arbor Brewing Company Satin Skies Oatmeal Stout. I think this is probably the third stout in four weeks. Um, But winter's winding down, and I had this in my fridge, so thought I'd uh, better get it on the pod, and then we'll move towards other beers as the season wears on and there's so many good ones out there Uh, anything interesting to note on the can other than being a basic oatmeal stout it's 6.5 percent abv and that's all the information that arbor brewing provides Um, poured very nicely Uh, it's got i would say a medium dark head for a oatmeal stout Um, initial reactions are just a little bit of bitterness from some coffee notes and a pretty good mouthfeel. Uh, not too thin, not real thick either though. Probably uh, well balanced in terms of uh, malt and bitterness and mouthfeel. So a pretty good oatmeal stout, uh, I'd say. One that I would certainly order up again. And that has always been the uh, the real benchmark of whether a beer is for me or not for me here at Potoms Up. And um if I could remember the name, Satin Skies, or if I saw it on tap and just wanted an oatmeal stout, I don't think I'd be disappointed. Because too often I do forget the names of the beers that I'm trying. Um, so to get started, obviously, I want to talk about the war in Ukraine, which now, if you're in Russia, you're not allowed to call it a war or an invasion. And you could face up to 15 years imprisonment if you do. Um, but it is a war, and it is an invasion, and I'm a couple weeks late to the party, so I'm not going to try and get into either the uh, the logistics or the news of what's happening. I, I do think it's still up in the air to, to many as to what is the end game for Putin. Um, you know, this thing could drag on for a while. I suppose he's wanting to put in uh, some sort of puppet government or government official and then there's the access to uh what is referred to as a warm water port uh, i guess his pacific seaboard is not a useful port maybe it freezes uh, up where he's at and ukraine has a coastline that doesn't freeze and it's uh, pretty substantial in length and i could understand how that would be uh, immensely important to Russia, other than just wreaking havoc on the rest of the world through military might, I'm not sure even what he really needs a uh, warm water port for. 
you, you know, trade in the global sense is so easy to do nowadays. And natural resources are so easy to come by through deals and trade and fair market values. It's just hard to really understand what it is that Putin's endgame is with Ukraine. Um, you know, is it about trying to make a statement that his brand of authoritarianism is going to win out over democracies? You know, there's lots of speculation as to the reasons why. And the other reason that comes up often is one that uh, uh, may be the most accurate of all, and that is he's really become a madman in the sense that, you know, he's a threat to mankind and a threat to world kind and a threat to the earth, that kind of madman. And I'm not going to go there today. I kind of told myself, you know, I didn't want to bring up the nuclear discussion. But, you know, whenever you have a superpower with nukes aggressively uh, invading and and provocating military action, you, you can't really ignore it. But we try because the uh, repercussions and, and the fallout, no pun intended, are just unimaginable. So you try and park it over there. And then, you know, you kind of couple that with what's happening just recently with uh, Ukraine, and that is this idea of escalation, right? And, and I believe this is going to continue to escalate. Now, will it escalate beyond Ukraine's borders is really I think, the big question mark. And, you know, ho- hopefully it, it never does. You know, be- before I got into too much of what's happening with Ukraine and Russia, I did want to express some level of sympathy for the Ukrainian people. I mean, this is horrible, what's happening to them, their displacement, and the way that their country is being ripped apart and torn down. And, you know, Putin doesn't fight fair. Um, and when you see the images or you know the stories or you have a sense of what's happening over there, it's it's really just absolutely heartbreaking. You, you know, first and foremost, I, I stand with Ukraine and its people. But with that said, it's still a war and there should be an end game to it. And we just don't know what that is. And it's hard to imagine that Putin's going to be satisfied with anything other than an unconditional surrender, which doesn't look like it's going to happen. And if you're Zelensky, and you know he's doing a, a terrific job in his bravery and his, and his stand-up-to-the-bully attitude, that is something that needs to be credited, for sure. But at some point, do you think to yourself, is my first job to protect the people, my people? the people of Ukraine, and that even though we might fall under a dictator, then I've saved three million lives. Uh, it's a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, and, you know, we've learned from World War II that appeasement doesn't really ever seem to be the answer. But, you know, the thought was Neville Chamberlain thought that he saved millions of lives, and he may have uh, to a certain extent. And maybe it's just buying time to save those lives. And I'm not saying that Ukraine ought to surrender. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just talking about the pressure on Zelensky that he's facing to determine what's too great, right? What loss is too great? And at what point, if you're losing, do you throw in the towel? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous, I guess you could say, of all of these very sort of like promising news bits that come out about, you know, the Russian army doesn't have gas and the logistics are awful and 
troop morale is down and, you know, the Ukrainians are fighting smarter and they're fighting for their homeland. I, I think all of that can be sort of like interpreted, interpreted sort of falsely positive because in the end, the overwhelming might of Russia will decimate that country. They may not own it, but they will decimate it and they will kill a lot of people. You know, they didn't win in Afghanistan, but I think that's a completely different scenario. Afghanistan didn't have the infrastructure, didn't have the people that Ukraine does. And there's so much more carnage that he can cause in Ukraine than what he could cause in Afghanistan. And I don't think that they're willing the Russians to put up with what they did in Afghanistan and which kind of brings me back to the worst case scenario as to when does he start threatening and giving ultimatums as to when he would start dropping nukes and again I didn't want to go there I I apologize for going there again so you know it's it's a really tough situation because in the end I think Russia is going to occupy that country in one fashion or another and I think they're going to kill millions of civilians and I think they're going to just you know turn so much of their infrastructure into rubble and then what's it all for you know maybe what what it's for is you know the continuation of democratic uh, governments and institutions and maybe that's what it's for but um you know it's I'm, I I guess I'm in a very dark place about this because I just don't see a a solution that gets Russia out of there and they save face. And if that's important, I guess, but for Putin, it probably is. And Ukraine doesn't lose more than it already has. So I don't know what else I could say about it. There is a lot of chatter right now about how much we should help Ukraine. I guess we're willing to sell... Uh, uh, sell them javelin missiles and uh, sidewinders or whatever they're called, uh, but we don't want to send them planes. I did read a little bit about how there's a difference between weapons of defense like javelins and then weapons of offense like fighter planes or tanks. And and I think there is something there. I think the U.S. has to be careful, even though Putin has already said that our actions and our sanctions are an act of war, he hasn't really acted on them. So he may be trying to set up an excuse where he believes we have engaged in this war in a way that he feels is so much interference that now that war is against the United States and Russia. But I don't think that's happened yet. And I think that the U.S. has to be careful about that. And as much help and assistance that we can give to Ukraine while balancing that by not entering into a full-fledged war with Ukraine. Going back to something I said earlier about the morale of the Russian troops and their overall military might, they have a lot of troops. I think they have about 150,000 or so, which maybe is not enough to be an occupying force, the country of Ukraine. And they have all these logistical issues with tanks and ground forces. But what they do have is air superiority and missile technology. Those are much easier to rain down on people and on innocent people than if you're a soldier running through the streets of, you know, some countryside or small city in in Ukraine and you come across a family of Ukrainians. You don't want to shoot those folks. You, you know, you're a young soldier. You're, you're not even 
doing what you thought you would be doing when you signed on with the, the Russian army, which you were, which was mandatory for you to do. I think there's a big difference between pushing a button and dropping a missile or a fighter plane uh, taking out targets. You know, it was one of those lessons that we learned in Vietnam that dropping bombs is easy and we don't really see what the effects are uh, first rate of dropping those bombs. You know, that's different than the soldier on the ground who's been told that that person standing over there is somehow harming you and now you have to take them out. Now, the Ukrainian can see, hey, that person over there, that Russian is here to harm me and I'm going to take them out. So they start shooting at them and then the Russian says, hey, that person's shooting at me and things escalate. Whether that's an example of what happens on the ground or a metaphor and analogy for the larger context of how wars explode into world wars. But I just, I just think that missile technology and the Russian air military is so much more powerful and they're going to continue to wreak havoc on Ukraine. And uh, I wish I knew, like anybody else did, what the end game is, but I just, uh, I don't see it. You know, it's really, really difficult to, to see where it's going to end. Um, there's probably a lot more that I could say about the war, and every day things are changing, but I just, it, it, it's so overwhelming, and uh, and even though information can travel so much faster and more accurately than it has in the past, even going back to the Gulf Wars when you'd watch them on TV. Um, I, I think it's really hard for us to to get a holistic sort of you know view of what is happening and the trend that is taking place. Um, and uh, you know, my my fear is that things are going more in favor of the Russians than what we all want to believe. That that's kind of what what I've been saying. And you know, until we know what the political end is, it's really hard to predict when the military fight ends. All right. Well, I don't know. I guess I don't have much more to add. One of the things that's a byproduct of this war are gas prices. And gas prices in the U.S. were starting to go up prior to the war. Maybe some of it was going up because of speculation on on the war. And now we've rightfully cut off Russian imports. And so we're going to see another increase in gas prices. But I don't really think we as the layman, understand how gas pricing works. And I've been doing a little research on this, and most of it is coming up kind of empty with more questions than answers. And I'm not really complaining about gas prices. You know, the rest of the world pays much higher prices for gas. The United States is the world's largest producer of oil, I believe. But we are also the world's largest consumer of oil. It, it is kind of funny to, to hear Republicans complaining about gas prices, but then they've never wanted to move in any sort of, you know, expeditious way to get away from oil. There's a lot of irony in, in, in the entire discussion regarding gas prices. That's just one of them. But what, I, what I've been thinking about is you, you hear a lot of discussions regarding U.S. oil imports and U.S. oil exports. And, you know, just Google it if you want, right? And you'll find information about the U.S. imports, 7% of their oil from Saudi Arabia and 5% of their oil from Russia or whatever those numbers might be. But I actually think I have them inverted. But what you don't really see 
is who is doing the importing for the U.S. I think the American public has been duped into believing that somehow or another, the U.S. government buys and sells oil. And the U.S. government does not buy and sell oil, at least as near as I can figure out. Because if we bought oil from Saudi Arabia or Russia, the U.S. government, then the U.S. government would be responsible for selling that oil, right, to the refineries, right? But that that isn't what takes place. The, the, the U.S. government is not in the business of buying and selling products. They facilitate those sales. They make it possible. But once trade agreements are in place with other countries, then it's American business and capitalism that takes over. So if we're upset that we are still importing oil from Saudi Arabia or from Russia, are we to blame Washington or those countries that are importing the oil? If we're exporting oil to regimes that we don't particularly like, like China, who's to blame? The, the one thing that always escapes this conversation is the fact that America is based on, at least economically, is based on very liberal, small L, business policies. We let business run our economics. I've said for years, I said it under Obama, I said it under Trump, and I say it under Biden. The executive branch of our government has very little to do with the economic success or failures of America. They do set the ground rules, which kind of then set up the way the game is played, but success and failure is still driven by U.S. companies doing the right things or the wrong things within that set of rules. So I'm not saying that there isn't some impact by the government rules, but by and large, most of them are not. Oil is a great example. Oil prices are not set by the government. Barrel prices are not set by the, our, our government. And gasoline prices are not set by our government. We have taxes on things, but there's taxes on all kinds of other products. But the U.S. government doesn't have any more input, really, on the day-to-day -day price of gasoline than it does on green beans or toilet paper or salsa. It doesn't, it doesn't really work that way. There's private businesses in the U.S. and globally that are the ones that are controlling the prices. And as soon as gas goes up, everyone looks to the government to try and fix it. And the government is in control of it. In this particular situation with gas, it's really interesting that pretty much since the pandemic started to wind down and demand started to go way up, so did price. The pandemic had far more impact on the gas prices than anything that the government did. We stopped using gas. It got cheap. Now we're using gas again, and oil refineries and gas companies are trying to ramp back up. But in the meantime, they are definitely gouging the consumer. It used to be that gas prices were sort of a direct line relationship between the price uh, of a barrel. And, you know, you'd get the news reports. The price of a barrel has gone up 10% and then you'd see it reflected in your pump. And that was all based on speculation because obviously that oil that was used to make that gas wasn't the more expensive. It was bought at probably something cheaper. So the speculators and the oil futures would determine, okay, by the time we buy this oil, it's going to be this amount of money. And so that gets re reflected at the pump right away. It's still a scam, but that's just the way that it was. But what I saw sort of happening, even though the price of oil was more or less maintaining itself, say through 2021, gas prices kept rising. And I think gas is more reflective now 
of other commodities, at least in terms of what the consumer is willing to pay. That being, we're going to see how much we can get out of the consumer before our demand and before our sales start to drop. And when you have a commodity that's necessary and you're working within a oligopoly of very little competition, and that competition is well aware of what everyone else is doing, it's ripe. It is definitely ripe to go for the gouging. I mean, items that are truly needed by the American people probably ought to have price regulations attached to them. And it's it's funny when I have this conversation with people with, with the right wing about gas prices, and like, now you want socialism, Right? You want the government to step in and dictate the price, and they're, you know, no, we don't want that. Yeah, in fact, that's what you do want. And then they're like, no, we want Biden to do this, this, and this, and this. And those things would have minimal effect on the price of gas because oil that we're producing right now isn't, we, we aren't getting close to that point where we're almost out of oil. And so, it's not that situation. Now that's going to come someday, and which why we have to use renewable sources of energy, but. We're still operating under the premise that it's unlimited. And we can produce as much oil as we want, and other countries can too. So the supply aspect, the supply aspect of oil becomes very artificial, right? And producers, when they're not making it, the price goes up. When they are making it, the price goes down. The demand, it varies some. It varies by seasonality. Um, You know, at, at four... 25 today when I was getting gas, you know, the, the pumps were kind of empty. There weren't a whole lot of people at the pumps. And and so there is some elasticity to usage. But in the United States, with the lack of mass transit, no matter how you try and change your lifestyle, you're probably going to be using pretty close to the same amount of gas that you normally would. Maybe you don't take that trip, right? You know, that road trip, maybe. But other than that, you know, you're going to the store, you're going to your friend's house. You're going to work. And and those things really don't change very much at all. And and so just like it's a utility, it probably ought to be regulated to a certain extent. But right now, these are private businesses making business decisions, and they are hugely profitable. I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but they are hugely profitable. You know, that's really what's happening with gas prices, is the gas people are finally, even your local gas stations are finally taking the opportunity to say, you know what, I can make more money now. One of the interesting things here in Michigan that I've seen is chain stores like a Myers or a Kroger, chain stores, which all are buying their gas through a contract that they have, right, through, cor- through, through their corporation, are charging different amounts at the pumps. So somebody's making that decision down at either corporate level or a store level that says, I'm going to compete against that guy down the road and raise my gas prices. So it, it, it doesn't become, and maybe lower those prices as well, but it doesn't become a dynamic of how much of they're paying. It's, it's much more like your typical marketplace capitalism, which in many cases can be good. But as I said before, when you have no, really very little competition and you're selling an item that people need, hence, you really have got the opportunity to gouge people. I, I just... I just think that people have to wisen up and when they think about gas prices and they think about oil imports and exports, who's driving that? And it's not the government. It's big business.
And I work for big business. I'm not opposed to big business. But there has to be some level of fairness when you talk about necessities for people. And, you, you know, this this whole Russia thing, just is it, it, it really just cracks me up. The right is freaking out about paying $4 or $4.50 a gallon, which we've had prices near this back in 2014, and they actually lasted for a long time, several years, but they're freaking out about it now. And then they say, well, we got to cut our imports, which is only going to raise prices even further. You really can't have it both ways unless you regulate. One of the things that I, I, I found interesting, and I shared this with one of the right-wing nuts that I talked to on Facebook was that right now, and I looked this up again tonight just to double-check myself, the U.S. imports and exports about the same amount of oil, 8.47 million barrels per day in imports, 8.63 million barrels per day in exports. So our our net imports is actually um, slightly less than our exports. So we're producing enough oil here in the United States to support ourselves. Why? You know, again, think of it like green beans. Why would we be exporting green beans and importing green beans at the same time? I have no fucking clue. (laughs) And when it comes to global and international trade, that's a much larger, much more complicated topic than simply just saying, well, if we just stop exporting and we just stop importing, then we're energy efficient. Because essentially, we are energy efficient right now. And and even though we're importing oil, we're still only importing, other than from our friends in Canada, something in the neighborhood of around 25%. So the vast majority of the oil that we're consuming is coming from North America. And, and it doesn't really make sense to me that a minority percent from outside the U.S. would drive price that much. In other words, the pricing is really coming from what we do here in the U.S. And a lot of it has to do with refineries. There is that added step between petroleum and then gasoline. And I think it's right now getting the refineries up and running and what's happening to the cost of refineries is probably what's driving up the gasoline price more than anything else. Combine that with good old traditional American gouge the consumer. I don't know. I, I kind of think that's what, what was on my mind more than other things today. I I was speechless when it came to uh, Ukraine because it's just so dark and sad. And it is directly tied to uh, what's happening uh, with uh, gas prices and other prices in the U.S., I really like some of the memes out there that talk about instead of complaining about paying four bucks at the pump, you know, you could be complaining about having to leave your home country or, you know, sleep on a riverbank or not knowing when you're going to see your children again. You know, and I think those kinds of things put put the world in, in proper context as it is right now. But, but even given that, uh, I think that I think we have to stop putting this entire gas and oil industry in the context of that it's all the responsibility of government. It's just not. And, you know, I'm repeating myself. It's capitalism. I'm in favor of capitalism. But in certain industries, there has to be greater regulation. I guess I'll end it there. So the beer's going down well. Uh, I'm enjoying it. I I thought maybe I I would touch on a quick topic here, social topic tonight, um, just to lighten it up a little bit. And that is 
the phenomena that has swept the world in the last uh, couple of weeks, I guess we're probably going on a month now, it may be dying off already. I'm not quite sure, but based on the number of sharing posts that I see, it may already be happening. And that is this crazy phenomena of Wordle. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, then I assume that you're living under some kind of a rock, in a rock, because I don't know if they're playing Wordle there. They probably are. And it's really been fascinating and there's been a lot of articles written about it. I was catching up on the history of it today from Wikipedia. And the most fascinating thing about it that I learned, maybe I had learned uh, who the original developer and creator was. And I didn't, I, I when I first heard his name, it, it didn't mesh with me. But uh, it was created by Josh Wardle, W-A-R-D-L-E. So even though Wordle fits... Because it's, you know, a puzzle of words. It's also a great play and pun on uh, his name. And then I think many people know the story that he invented this as something to pass the time with uh, during the pandemic. Then it started to grow a little bit. And then when they added the sharing feature, which was sometime around December of 2021, I guess, they went from 90 users to 300,000 in just a couple of weeks. And then it was like 3 million within another couple of weeks after that by, by January. So it was the sharing aspect of Wordle that really created the viralness. Is that a word? That kind of brought this into, you know, part of our culture. I don't want to explain the game, you know, look it up <laughs> or go get the app. But I just find it really interesting that it's social impact. And the first that I, I kind of found interesting was that people wanted to share. And there was something about the game where folks, when they completed the puzzle, whether they did poorly or they did well, they wanted to share it. And you could share it without revealing anything. So you, you really weren't spoiling it for anyone else that wanted to play the game. And when I first jumped on after seeing people sharing their results and they're like, okay, what is this thing of yellow and green squares? And then, you know, I was in tune to it. I kind of understood, okay, now I'm going to share my results. Now, I, I do have to say, to my credit, <clears throat> I, <laughs> I think it's to my credit. I was one of the early people to stop sharing uh, because I didn't quite get it. Like, okay, I'm sharing now and people are sharing this, but I didn't quite understand why I'm sharing it. And, you know, it, it, it's that kind of game where you're showing off you might be smart because you got it in two or three. And maybe you're admitting that you struggle a little bit if you did it in five or six. But when you really start to play the game, there's so many different variables in terms of how you probably got to where you got. It becomes... I think kind of less important how you got there. And so then what was the point of sharing it? Right. And then, you know, there was kind of lots written about people, you know, the, the overabundance of sharing and that, you know, just filling up people's timelines, the, and, and Twitter feeds, these green and yellow boxes. And for many became annoying. And I did share an article with my, uh, with my circle of friends about uh, how when you share it, those tiles come through as emojis and for the vision impaired who get their timeline read to them um, became very annoying to them because the AI uh, text-to-speech features that they use would rattle off these yellow and green square emoji symbols and it and there were some examples of it 
and it really was quite annoying. I think that's a really small percent of the folks that have that problem and are are you sharing it publicly or only within your own group of friends so it's not really a a big deal to share it for or or to decide not to share it for that reason i'd already kind of been done doing the wordle sharing uh, by that time but i still play it every day and i have another app that does it and i call that my practice app before i go to the real wordle and then I use another app, which isn't a daily, which I can play as many words as I want uh, within a day. And I sometimes will just kind of do that for fun. The daily aspect of Wordle combined with the sharing, I think, is one of the reasons that it made it so popular. Because you had to wait for the next day. So if you could do it anytime you wanted to, then sharing would become just absolutely redundant. You know, and nobody would care. And it's kind of like back in the early days of Facebook when everyone was just posting pictures of what they were eating at that moment. It became very old. So the scarcity of it um, being once a day really helped drive the sharing aspect of it. So... I don't know. I just thought it's worth a mention and it's a lot of fun and it is certainly a unique kind of viral game, you know, that you're not playing with someone else. I'm trying to think of another viral game that people really kind of have latched onto that they like to share and um, nothing really comes to mind. Uh, you know, lots of people play lots of games on their phones, Candy Crush or um, Solitaire, or whatever, whatever your preference is. Uh, but people just generally don't share the results. Uh, there's quite a bit of uh, history, uh, short history, about how the game sort of came to be and other Wordles that were already out there. And then there's the copycat Wordles. And it certainly seems that the New York Times, after they purchased the game from Josh Wardle, uh, they, it would appear that they're kind of going after these other apps out there and maybe trying to get them to shut down. Again, not, not really sure. Um, but a lot of them have changed either their name or offered slight variations to what they do, probably to a- avoid the wrath of the New York Times. You know, there was a lot of concern when the New York Times bought them that they were going to put them behind their paywall, but they didn't. And it's still a free game. Kudos, I guess, for the New York Times to, you know, for that and not ruining a lot of people's fun. Anyway, so if you like to be challenged, challenged by word games, I I recommend playing it, but I don't recommend sharing it. And uh, with that, I'm going to wrap it up today. So uh, as always, drink up, listen up, and potoms up. Politics. Some culture and craft beer Politics And that is why you're here Politics Adam's up